Uh, my name is Jordan. I'm the adult ministry pastor here at Soul Sanctuary, and it's great to be here uh, with you to share this morning's life lesson as we continue in our series, God in the Movies. And so before we start with the life lesson, I'm just going to make announcements of just a couple of things that um, we didn't manage to get into the video weekly. Uh, Kids Camp, Mega Kids Camp is happening at Seoul from July 16th to 20th this summer. And we already have 80 kids registered for this camp. Like this is going to be a great week, a great camp. But we are still looking for a few more volunteers, particularly one or two people who could lead games in the morning. And maybe a person who um, enjoys making snacks and preparing snacks, and you could become the snack coordinator for the week. And so, or maybe you just want to kind of get involved and volunteer and just hang out with kids for the week. That'd be awesome too. Speak to Pastor Shauna Lavender. Uh, you could email her at shauna at soulsanctuary.ca, and she'd love to have you uh, be part of that team. Also, I can't stress enough, first Wednesday, this Wednesday, 707 upstairs in the Student Center, topic is healing. Uh, coincidentally, it's beginning our school of ministry class on that topic of healing. And so I just want to encourage you, if you're going to make it a part of your week, just to join us for First Wednesday. Uh, it's going to be a great time of just getting into the Word, worshiping, and also uh, there'll be a time for response where we'll be able to pray and just seek God together. So just want to make mention of that. But this morning, we are looking at the movie Sully. Anyone seen this movie yet? Yeah? Anyone, anyone enjoyed it? Anyone kind of got scared by it a little bit? You see, it's a, definitely a little bit ironic for me, you know, that I'm the one sharing about this movie, considering that I often get, you know, uh, harassed a little bit and teased, um, even from staff members. I'm not going to mention any names here this morning about, <laughs> about my fear of flying and perhaps my fear of heights. Like, I know my disposition when you look at me. You guys think I'm fearless, right? Uh, you probably think to yourself that I tightrope walk on the weekends, right? And, you know, fear factor, that's Jordan's gig, right? But you know what? I, I, I am a little timid at times, and I get a little fearful of stuff from time to time. And when I saw that Pastor Jerry um, had chosen this as one of the movies uh, for the series a few weeks back, he mentioned that I could teach on it. But the week after he mentioned that, I knew I was going to be flying out to Vancouver and to Victoria for a conference. And so I kind of thought, you know what, I, I need to ensure I actually walk on this airplane and get to this conference, right? So I decided, you know, maybe I'll just hold that off for now. But uh, it has come around again, and here we are. And uh, this movie is not only a great movie, but it's also a great story. And um, I hope you enjoy just kind of going through this today. If you haven't watched it, I, I just have to encourage you. You have to check this one out. But uh, let's start with my fear of flying. You know, I blame my fear of flying on that movie you see on the screen right now. You see, as a kid, most of us watch Disney movies. A lot of my friends like Little Mermaid, like Lion King. I watch La Bamba and Bloodsport, right? Uh, I'm from Thompson. We do things a little rougher up there, okay? But uh, I watch this movie over and over and over again. And La Bamba is the true story of the life of Richie Valens. He was one of the three musicians who died. The event's known as the day the music died. Uh, he was with Buddy Holly and the Big Bopper. And they were taking off out of Clear Lake, Iowa on a chartered airplane. Now, the whole movie told the story of Richie's fear of flying, and he refused to fly his whole life. He would not do it. And finally, their bus broke down, the heat wasn't working, and he won a coin toss that got him on that airplane. Um, long story short, uh, they crashed shortly after takeoff, and uh, the rest is history now. And I remember watching that as a kid and thinking to myself, you know, I'm scared of flying. I can't fly. Flying's a bad thing. Flying's not good. And so I was definitely a little timid of it for most of my life. And then finally, when I, be, when I was pastoring in Thompson, I must have been about uh, 25, 26 years old, my pastor offered me an opportunity to go to a conference in Edmonton, but he told me the only way you can get there is if you fly, because I'm not going to let you drive in the middle of winter. 
And if you spend any time in Thompson, anytime you get offered any kind of out, right, you'll jump on the wings to go, right? Like you need to get out of there every now and then. It's very isolated, very lonely kind of community. So part of me was like, you know what? Yeah, I'll jump on that plane. And I flew. And the more I do it, the more comfortable I get with it. Um, if I do it often throughout the year, I kind of get the hang of it. Um, but I remember my, one time I was flying with a fellow pastor and the lady was kind of going through like the safety features. You know that part that most of us sleep through now or try to just kind of, you know, whatever, let's get over this right now. And I remember even opening the book, I pulled out the little map and she was talking about in the event of a water landing. Um, as she was going through her little safety features, I remember looking at it thinking, okay, this is what you do. And my pastor friend leans over at me and, and, and he kind of chuckles and laughs and goes, oh, don't worry about that, Jordan. If we end up in the water, you're not going to need any of that. We're not going to be around to see it. And I was like, oh, thank you. Praise the Lord, right? Uh, here I am, a guy who doesn't like flying, and my hopes are being dashed before we even take off today, right? And so uh, this movie, with this in mind, uh, this movie is about an incident that happened in an airplane. True story, happened in New York. I uh, can't remember the exact date, but um, I have it written down here. I'll get that info to you later, okay? But uh, it's a true story of uh, an accident that kind of took place in the air, and uh, we're going to look at the first clip. It starts after they ended up in the Hudson, and it kind of begins the backstory of what was going on in the movie. And so if I could just have the first clip, let's watch it. And so that's the kind of the, one of the opening scenes of the movie. And I'm just going to read a quick description to you of what kind of uh, led to this point. And so the date of the flight was January 2nd, 2009. And that's when flight 1549, a regular U.S. airway trip from the LaGuardia, LaGuardia Airport um, at 326 local time, bound for Charlotte, North Carolina, took off. Uh, everything was going fine. The captain did his usual checks. They were kind of settling in for a smooth flight like they'd expected, you know, hundreds and thousands of times before. But two minutes into the flight, the plane ran into a flock of Canadian geese. Now, if one geese was to get into an engine, it could be very dangerous and cause problems. You run into a whole flock of them, and all of a sudden, you know, you have huge problems. And almost immediately, both engines of that plane just failed on him while in the air. And so there was no way to get back to the airport, and that was even proven later in the movie. Uh, spoilers, sorry. Uh, they, la they landed, you know, landing on a crowded, you know, New Jersey air uh, airport um, uh, turnpike was not an option for them. The only feasible option, as bad as it sounded, was to land on the Hudson River, which was almost, in most people's minds, nearly impossible to do. It had never been done. One slight mistake would send the plane in a somersault before breaking up and sinking altogether. And so in, the two, in two to three minutes, they had to maneuver towards the river. Many split-second decisions had to be made in an instant. Uh, they had to adjust the nose to keep up flight speed. They had to override the autopilot computer. They had to straighten up out of a sharp turn to land on the water with the current and make sure that they didn't land against the current. Uh, they had to be perfectly level on impact, along with many other tasks amateurs would not understand. Fortunately, the captain, um, Chelsea Sullenberger III, known as Sully, was also a gliding instructor in his past. And so he'd had some experience gliding, and so that was just something that was added to his skill set in a situation like this. And at just the right moment, he had to bring the nose back up as he was landing to set the plane on the water to keep it from, from diving in. And they did it. And they successfully landed this plane. And everyone got off the plane safely with Captain Sully himself walking up and down the aisles of the plane many a times just to make sure that everyone was safe, make sure that everyone was able to get off. 155 souls took off on that plane and 155 souls returned safely 
to the ground. And it was just a traumatic experience for many. It was a very emotional experience. Uh, for us on the outside, it was an amazing, a breathtaking experience. I remember seeing this on CNN. Does anyone remember this? When this event happened and you turn on your TV and you saw that there was a plane in the river. You know, I think we become so desensitized sometimes to things that happen that maybe we just kind of saw it and thought, oh, that's cool. I'm glad, glad they're okay, right? But what, what an amazing and incredible thing they were ever, they, they were able to pull off here. And many people describe this event as a miracle. And after watching the movie and hearing the stories, it does seem like a miracle. At one level, I would never question that at all. It's an amazing thing that happened. But what I find so incredible about this event is the way it illustrates a very vital truth for us to embrace as followers of Christ and for anyone who wants to be able to rise to the occasion should you ever be called upon. And you can call it this, you can call it the power of right habits. You might say it was the years of training and experience that really played a crucial and major role in bringing about this miraculous ending, this miraculous landing, not crash, as Sully was quick to point out. And so here we look at the movie Sully, and despite the amazing water landing and action that was taken in 208 total seconds in the air, Sully and his co-pilot and his crew are about to be questioned, they're about to be accused, they're about to be judged, and they're about to be second-guessed throughout this whole process of whether maybe they could have done things differently, about whether they could have done something safer, about whether or not they could have made it back to the airport in time. And what seems like an amazing ending in the media and to the local news and to the rest of us gazing at this, it had a lot more going on in the background of the actual events. And that's what we're going to focus on a lot when we look at this movie today. Because even, even though all 155 people lived and were safe, the battle was just beginning for Captain Sully and what he was going to have to face. They're about to have their motives, and not only their motives, but they're going to have their work questioned and put under an unfair microscope and dissected and looked at. And you can even see um, some of his answers there. He wanted to make it clear to the people, like, you know, this is what happened. This is what we were facing, and we'll see a bit more of that. But one question we need to ask ourselves when we look at a film like this is the question, how do you handle criticism? Do you like it when people criticize you? Have you ever been accused of something that maybe you thought was a little bit unfair? And how did that make you feel? How did, how, what was your initial instinct, your initial response, and how you would react to such a thing? Have you ever had people question your motives? How does that make you feel? You see, we're going to see this happen throughout this movie. And for Sully, not only was his skill as a commercial pilot tested, but so was his character throughout this event. And I think, in my mind, that's something that I look at even more. You know, the miraculous landing is absolutely amazing. And we see his skill set that he had as a pilot. But what shines through to me even more as I watch this movie is the character of Captain Sully and the kind of person that he was. Through the process, you know, but once again, when they return to dry ground and quote-unquote everyday and normal life, he's about to experience challenges. He's about to experience things that will test his character. And what's amazing to me, as much as his great display of skills by landing that plane in the water was, was his character and his ability to put others first and really just to be faithful in all he did. And so with that in mind, let's watch a, a second clip here. You see, Sully was a trained professional. This wasn't his uh, first time 
up in the air with a plane, but he had drawn from countless hours of experience. And we hear him talking about that as he did an interview with 60 Minutes. We hear him, uh, we see that, you know, he, he, he was taking training. Uh, just before this clip that we watched, he was quoted as saying, I've delivered a million passengers over 40 years in the air, but in the end, I'm going to be judged on 208 seconds. How, 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 how many would sign up for that kind of treatment, right? You see, Sully wasn't comfortable with referring to this as a crash, but he pointed out that this was a water landing. This was something that he had, tra- that he had known what to do through his years of training, that he, he, he at least knew the theory. He probably hadn't put it into practice per se by landing it, but he had at least trained and prepared for an event like this. And in the end, let's face it, that if you or I had been flying the plane that day, any of us in this room who weren't trained pilots at all, we would all be doomed. That's just how things would have gone. But we have to recognize that it's not like Sully was born with this ability to fly a plane. He didn't wake up, you know, one day, you know, as a young child and all of a sudden have this gifting and this ability over his life to fly. He wasn't born with this ability to, to, to fly a plane per se, let alone the skills that he needed to land a plane in the Hudson River. None of the skills required and certainly none of the courage, restraint, the cool judgment and concern for others that he so famously displayed are a part of the kit that we receive at birth. We don't just receive these things per se, but you have to work at developing that set of skills. You have to choose those behaviors. You have to practice them. And then when the time comes that you may really need those skills and strength, you will automatically react as the situation demands. And here's what we saw in his life and in his experience, because these skills aren't just something that has sprung upon you in the moment, but your whole life you trained, you worked, and you put these things into practice. And I believe that there's a great lesson for us who want to follow, who want to live for Christ when we think about, you know, the situations and the things that we're called into as Christians here for us. You see, these skills for Sully had become the virtue of his life. It is a thousand small choices made to do the right thing that develops our character and that develops our abilities. And so that when called upon, we can handle the situations at hand. You see, as Christians, it's the daily things that we do, like pray and read our Bibles and worship and serve others and, you know, serve our family and be courtesy courteous to strangers and, you know, work diligently at our jobs, etc. Those things that are unfortunately underrated and have maybe become just kind of common and ordinary are things that we must not see that way. You see, each of us throughout life will experience moments where we have to do things for Christ and where we have to do things for others, or I shouldn't say half where we get to is probably a better way to put it. But let me say this, we don't gain spiritual authority or vitality in a moment when things are really bad. We don't just all of a sudden acquire the spiritual authority and vitality that we may need when things go downhill really bad, or even maybe when things are on a mountaintop just as well. But spiritual authority, spiritual vitality is maintained all throughout life as we are faithful in obedience with even the little, ordinary, small decisions that we make one day at a time. And that's what we learn from the life of Sully here to begin in this talk, especially in the little things. Is it important to be faithful? You see, for Sully, this wasn't some moment where he made, you know, some right calls and made some lucky guesses. Thank goodness for the people on board and for himself. But his training, his day in, his day out faithfulness really prepared him for it. A moment that can't be prepared for properly, he was, in fact, the right person to meet the challenge. 
And the scriptures talk about this. The scriptures talk about daily practice and daily faithfulness. In Galatians 6, 9, we read this. It says, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. And so there's this call in scripture just to continue to do good, continue each day and make it a part of your, your, your plan and calendars. In Colossians 3, uh, we read this. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, not working, sorry, as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, the Lord Christ you are serving. And so keep doing the right things. Keep doing the little things. All things matter. Each day is important. Each decision carries significance for the kinds of people that we are becoming, for the type of character that we want to develop. Malcolm Gladwell, anyone familiar with his books? In his book, Outliers, uh, Story of Success. I love all of Gladwell's stuff. But in, in this book, he, he, he talked about um, why it is he believes some people are successful and why some people aren't. And in chapter 2, he introduces this thing called the 10,000-hour rule. And essentially, when he talks about 10,000 hours, what he's saying is this idea that if you want to master or become an expert at something, it is going to cost you. It is going to cost you, especially of your time. You're going to have to put some hard work in. You're going to have to put your, your, your time in. You're going to have to work diligently at things. And the number that he comes up with, that eventually, after putting in 10,000 hours worth of work on something, we could get to that point where we become an expert or a master at something. And he uses lots of illustrations to talk about this and to build his point. He talks about hockey players. He talks about Bill Gates. And he even zeroes in on the Beatles, uh, the band The Beatles, on how they would put in eight-hour days every single day practicing, how they played over 270 shows a year, which would not only put them at an advantage over others, but they were able to master their skills quicker than others because of the hard work that they put in. And he's not ignorant either. He talks about how, you know, it's not just a person that can accomplish this. Other people have to be willing to accomplish this for you as well. There are spouses, there are family members, there are people who depend on you, who need to allow you to have this kind of time for you to get here. And so now this theory of 10,000 hours, it really has been debated, it's been critiqued uh, since he released the book. But uh, one thing we can definitely agree on this morning, whether or not we fully subscribe to what he says about 10,000 hours or not, one thing we can definitely agree on is, is, is on whether we... Um, is, is that we truly do get better at things the more practice and the more faithfulness we put in, right? We get better at things the more we do them. He says this in the book. He says, practice isn't the, the thing you do once you're good. It is the thing you do that makes you good. It's just living things out. It's being faithful. It's the small decisions. It's, it, it's going to work every day. It's putting in the time. Working really hard is what successful people do, he says. The 10,000-hour rule is a definite key to a person's success. And you see, Christianity is never just about the, the big thing that's somewhere way out there or something that's way out distant in the future. I think sometimes we think, you know, eventually I'll get here, eventually I'll get there. But Christianity has always been about the opportunities that we are given today, right now, in the present. To make a choice to live for God, to make a choice to bring glory to him. You see, Sully's an example to us of someone who put his time in, loved what he did. And the moment that those birds struck the engine, he was able to act because all of his life, he'd been making the small decisions to prepare for such an event or for whatever he faced in the air. You see, and I believe in our lives of faith, it's no different. We will not gain spiritual vitality in a troubled situation or when the unexpected hits but it is something that is maintained throughout life. 
as we do the everyday and not ordinary but extraordinary things of loving Christ and putting what he had taught us into practice. We will grow closer to him. We will walk with him. We will sense his presence. We will sense his leading. And when the time comes, we will have something that we've invested in to lean on in those moments. You see, the Christian life is not achieved or learned in an instant, but it takes time to learn to pray. It takes us time uh, to grow in our serving God. But as we do and as we remain steady, I believe God will use us in this. Jesus said it like this in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it didn't fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. You see, Jesus tells his followers that when, when disaster strikes, the one who has built his house on a solid foundation will stand, but the one who has not built on a solid foundation, the house will fall. Many interpret this passage as building your life on Christ, and there's truth in that, and I'm, I'm good with that. But it's not just that alone. The, the passage actually says, everyone who hears these words of mine, but puts them into practice as well. The scripture suggests it's about taking the words and teachings of Jesus and putting them into practice is what's going to help us build on the true foundation that can stand when the storms come. You see, spiritual vitality is not instantaneous. It's not effortless. Wouldn't it just be so much easier if we could just, like, you know, take a big needle of, you know, spiritual vitality and we would just be set, right? And we wouldn't have to put in the hard work. We wouldn't have to, you know, do the things that stretch our character. We wouldn't have to, you know, sacrifice a whole lot. But spiritual vitality, not instant, not effortless, but it's maintained throughout life as we build our life upon Christ, his teachings, and obedience to them. Let's watch another clip. Sully was a hero, <laughs> but didn't necessarily feel like he fit the part. He was a man who did an amazing thing, and he was being praised all over the airways. They had him on Letterman. Uh, the interview you saw at the beginning there was on 60 Minutes. Uh, you could find all these things online. They're fascinating. I encourage you to go out and watch them. But we're going to talk just a couple moments here about something that Sully exhibited, which might be maybe my favorite thing that I see in his character as we watch this movie, and that's this thing known as humility. You see, some, Sully was a humble man, and it's, it's evident, and even to how he responds to people who critique him and to people who falsely accuse him. Earlier in the movie, his, his, his partner goes on about how we're heroes, how we did such a great thing, and Sully's quick to quiet him and say, you know what, they're just doing their job too. Um, each one of us has to answer in this situation. And for Sully, he lived his life in such a way that being a hero was something that he was more uncomfortable with than anything. And it's a struggle that he finds throughout the movie. You see, we each have two choices in how we respond when we are critiqued. Um, we have two ways of living in all of life. Uh, we can choose the path of humility, or we can choose its opposite. And now, what is the opposite of humility? We're going to talk about that for a second, because there's one thing inside of you and one thing inside of me that keeps you from and that causes you so what is the opposite of humility? Well, let me describe it for you. You see, it's the one thing that keeps you from celebrating other people's success, which we're going to see in the next clip that Sully completely pointed towards other people. It's the one thing that keeps you from issuing that apology, even when you know you're wrong. 
It's the one thing that keeps you arguing your point even when you realize you don't have a good point. Come on, right? Anyone been there before? You just start arguing for the sake of winning the argument at some point. It keeps you from admitting that you've lost. It keeps you from admitting weakness. It keeps you from admitting when you need help. It keeps you from admitting that sometimes you don't know what you're doing. It keeps you from being honest with others, honest with yourself. It keeps you from learning new things because you want everyone around you to think that you know everything. It's what causes you to feel good sometimes when others fail. It causes you to power up and to close up when you really what you should be doing is opening up. It causes you to cheat before you allow yourself to lose. It causes you to lie because you have to have the final word in. It causes you to buy things to impress people who aren't even paying any attention to you. What word am I talking about right now? Anyone? Pride. I'm talking about the opposite of humility, and the opposite of humility today is pride. You see, there's nothing wrong with being proud of your kids. There's nothing wrong with being proud of your work or the things that you've been able to do, etc. I'm not talking about that kind of thing here this morning. I'm not talking about taking appreciation and things that you've been able to accomplish, that your kids have been able to accomplish, that those around you have been able to accomplish. You see, there's, there's some healthy ways in which we can be proud of things in our lives. And in fact, towards the end of this movie, we're going to see Sully take a real healthy pride in how they were able to do their jobs in such an effective and efficient manner. But what we're talking about here when we talk about pride is unhealthy pride. C.S. Lewis said it like this. He said, unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness are, more, are mere sorry, flea bites in comparison to pride because pride leads to every other vice. And so the problem with pride is this. The problem with pride is that you, you can see it in other people in a second, and yet it's very tough to see when you look in a mirror. You see, pride actually diminishes us. It doesn't make us bigger. It doesn't make us badder, but it actually makes us smaller when we live that way. Pride diminishes our capacity to, to admit and to acknowledge and to apologize sometimes when we need to apologize. Pride diminishes our capacity to say what needs to be said. It di diminishes our capacity to give praise, to give compliments, to give people their due when in fact they should get it. And sometimes even when we do give them compliments, we add like a sting to it, right? Just because, you know, we have to throw something in there about ourselves or a joke. It diminishes our capacity to love and to receive love. It also hurts us and it hurts other people. You see, the scriptures show us another way. In the book of Colossians, um, it talks about what a Christian should wear, and oftentimes, we're known by what we wear, right? If I came up here this morning wearing sports paraphernalia, most of you would know me as kind of like a sports enthusiast, right? A big sports fan. Um, if you're wearing uh, preppier clothes, right, you're known as more sophisticated, right? Like you probably work at a desk. You think a lot, right? Um, if I was wearing Saskatchewan Rough Rider gear, right, I'd be known as someone who needs prayer, right? Like, you know, it, we kind of go through it all. And what you wear often determines a lot about you or some of the judgments that people will make on you, for better or worse, right? But in Colossians 3.12, here's what the Apostle Paul says about what Christians should wear. He says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. See, Christians are known for these things, for humility, for gentleness, for kindness, for patience. These are the things that we want to be known for. These are the things that war with pride, because pride really only thinks about oneself. And pride crowds other people out. Because when you're full of you, there's no room for anyone else. And not, not only that, but pride also has the potential, not just to crowd other people out, it has the potential to, cry, to crowd God out of the situation and of our lives. 
In Psalm 10:4, we read, in his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. I read that this week, and it hit me, and it was, it was a tough, tough verse to read. Because when we're prideful, we're looking out for ourselves. You see, this in the Hebrew literally means that there is no room for God, that there is no God to a prideful person. But it's always looking inward. You see, pride is kind of a prison. It shuts us in, and it shuts God and others out of our lives. And it's not healthy for us, and it's not healthy for other people. And I don't believe any of us ever wish for it. I don't think anyone wakes up and just, you know, says, oh, I just want a good case of pride today, right? I just want pride so bad, right? That people will always wonder my motives, always wonder what I'm thinking about them. But the invitation to follow Jesus is really also an invitation to unfollow pride and to lay it down. And Jesus defines greatness this way. He defined, it, he defined greatness by how, great you, how well you serve other people and not about how well others served you. It's a paradigm shift. He turns it all upside down. You see, greatness isn't about defending who I think I am, but greatness is about leaning into the benefit of other people. You see, pride can rob us of greatness. In Matthew 5, 5, Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And this was different than anyone had thought at the time. And it's even different than what we find in culture that tells us, rather than serve people, you want people serving you. And you know, and for a lot of us, we hear this word meek, and the first thought we have is that meek is weak, right? It's not exactly something that we want to be known for. But Jesus kind of says, you know, meekness is where it's at. It's, it's where we need to be. Meek are those willing to move in another place outside of themselves, and that place is, is a place where we're focused not just on self, but on other people. And Jesus, the greatest among them, modeled this in profound ways by washing the feet of his disciples and his followers. And in an instant, in that very act of a moment of picking up a cloth and washing the feet of his disciples, it's essentially he says, take that pride, Right? And he says to his followers, go and do likewise. And if you do this, it'll liberate you. It'll free you. You'll experience humility. It'll break the power that pride can have on the hold and life of a person. In Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing. He took the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to death on a cross. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ. That's a convicting, that's a strong, that's a powerful thought. Have the same approach to life as Christ did. And Christ's approach to life wasn't one of proud and one of being on top and bringing others down, but it was a life of loving, serving, and going out of his way in order that we in this room this morning can benefit. Jesus chose to get what he did not deserve. Jesus chose to get what he was not entitled to, all because he wanted to model for us a life lived in obedience, a life lived in humility. And Captain Sully in this movie, I really feel models for us this as well. In a moment where he could have just taken all the praise, all the attention, all the focus, all the accolades, he refuses to leave other people out. But really, he uplifts his co-pilot and his team and everyone on board that day, saying, we did it together. Everyone played their part. You see, pride in a lot of ways will focus on self. Humility will really focus outwardly. And in Philippians we, we hear that even 
Jesus humbled himself and modeled the way for us today. And we are also called in the same way that Jesus did to embrace that humble position. So we are called in Philippians 1.27. Paul says it like this. He says, whatever happens, no matter what the situation, who's accusing you, who's saying you did what, whatever happens, you, you could add whatever you want in there, but whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. Francis Chan says, the point of your life is the point to him. Whatever you're doing, God wants to be glorified because the whole thing is his. And so we live humbly, we live graciously, we live patiently, and our lives point to him even in the midst when people aren't treating us the way that we necessarily want to be treated. And with that, let's watch this clip. <laughs> so that's the scene uh, immediately before that. They were showing simulations of how a plane was able to land in New Jersey. He had two possible airports he can go to. He can go back to LaGuardia in New York, or he could go over to Teterboro in New Jersey. And uh, it took their simulations 17 attempts for uh, the, the one to even land successful. And that's kind of in like, you know, a simulation kind of video style. But one, one thing Sully touched on there that really uh, struck a chord with me as I watched this movie was this little thought of human error. And leaving time for humanity and for us to be human, even in the workplace like he was that day in the cockpit. You see, human error, really, when you think about it, is a key component to the gospel. The gospel um, starts in a lot of ways with our human error. The fact is, is that we are not perfect. Each of us is prone to mistake. Each of us is prone to error. Each of us has fallen short at some point somewhere. That's a truth that we have to humbly acknowledge before we can accept what Christ has for us. But, you know, if only life were more like a video game where we can make everything perfect <laughs> uh, without trouble or panic or stress and make great decisions all the time, and in Sully's case, always have perfect landings um, just because that's how things worked out. But that just isn't the human condition. It's just not who we really are. And to insist on anything different is a bit misleading. You know, there was this group back in the day in America called the Moral Majority, and they, they had this idea that everybody should live a certain way, should do certain things, and they wanted to impose morals on everybody. And, and, and the whole thing fell short when they couldn't even keep it up themselves, right? And when, when, they, when they, they had falling outs themselves, all of a sudden, everything began to crumble with it. But human error is really at the heart of the gospel message. Before we see good news, it starts with the bad news that we are imperfect. And Ephesians does the best job of explaining this. Here's what it says about our human error. As for you, you were dead in your, your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. When you followed the ways of this world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. How many of you know that that's bad news? right? That describes human error in a nutshell. That describes where we found ourselves. There's some very bad news contained in those scriptures. They talk about the very bad place we can find ourselves in because of sin and because of the error that we make as humans. And it's not a good place at all, but thank God that we don't have to reside there. And that we don't have to stay there. But there's better news. Let's keep reading the rest of that chapter. This is, picks it up right in the next verse. But because of God's great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with him, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. 
And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in the kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one should boast. For we are God's handiwork. Some translations say we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared for us in advance. And so not only do we have opportunity to receive his grace and to receive his love and to receive his mercy, but God has plans to use each one of us in our lives in order that we can bring glory unto him. You see, each one of us throughout life, we have moments, we will have moments where we are called upon to act in a certain way. And our behavior in those moments will have an influence on the people around us. You can kind of call it a sully moment in a way. Uh, likely and hopefully it's not going to be thousands of, you know, feet in the air when both engines die. Hopefully it's not that kind of moment, right? But each one of us will have moments where we're called to act, where we're called to do things, and our behavior will have profound influence on the people around us. Each of us will have to make these kind of decisions. And the scriptures tell us that we shouldn't be surprised and that we shouldn't be, you know, scared and that we shouldn't be, um, you know, feeling out of place when that happens. Because when we experience this, because it says that we are his handiwork, we are his workmanship. God has created great things for us to do in advance. And in those moments where we're called to act and when we're called to represent Jesus, it won't happen because we suddenly know what to do or because we just suddenly become strong in that moment or because we fluke out. But in those moments, we're going to be able to represent God. We're going to be able to live for him simply because it has been something that has defined our character throughout our lives in the daily, ordinary, everyday decisions. It's something that we've done throughout life by putting it into practice, even the things of the Christian life that unfortunately sometimes we've made ordinary when they clearly aren't. Friends, there's nothing ordinary about living for Jesus, but it's an incredible privilege. It's an incredible opportunity that we had. And Pastor Jerry, during worship this morning, was even talking about that, just standing amazed, just expecting him to show up. Do we, do, do we go about our day wanting to experience the presence of God every day? And Jesus tells us to build our foundations on the rock. And it's not, just on, it's not just on the rock, but it's also on hearing him and putting what he says into practice. If we're in Christ, we're new creations. The old is gone, the new has come. What once was our reality can no longer be because while human error hurts us and remains with us, I still make mistakes, anyone? Grace is there to save us. And not only will grace save us, but it also empower us as we go out and do good works for God in daily obedience so that when called upon, we can act and we can be a testimony to his grace to the people around us. We can't watch this movie without watching the water landing, right? Let's watch the clip. I love how the movie ends. And that little scene in the hall, we did our job recognizing the good job they'd done and that there was reason to celebrate. You see, the reason why this story is told, the reason why it is so um, out there is because it's good news. Like, like the guy said in the, in, in the second scene, New York needed a story like this, especially when it came to airplanes. It was good news. You see, Sully said my entire life up to that moment in his 60-minute interview had been in preparation to handle that particular moment. And I love that. 
all his days as a fighter pilot, over 30 years as a commercial pilot, every experience added to his training, preparing him to make the right decisions in mere seconds with life and death hanging in the balance. And so what, it, what does this all mean to us today? Well, here's what I think it means to us today. Today might look and feel just like another day, but in reality it isn't. You see, today you and I are in training for something. You and I, the decisions that we make today, tomorrow, all throughout this week, do something in our lives and our character and prepare us for things that lie ahead. Whatever our battles, challenges, crisis, the sense of unity with others committed to the same purpose, it strengthens us emotionally. This is the beauty sometimes of participating with other people on teams. But today we have the opportunity to seek God. Today we have the opportunity to put into practice what he taught us. To clothe ourselves with humility, with compassion, with kindness, with patience. It's not what happened yesterday that matters, but we must focus on today because that will carry us into what lies ahead tomorrow. I heard it said a few weeks ago that God doesn't have a plan for your past, but he does have a plan for your future. You know, the past can inform our future in some ways, maybe too much if we let it, but the past is there. God's plan isn't for the past, it's for the future. It's for what we do when we leave this place today as we continue to walk ahead. And even today, we can make a decision again and afresh in our hearts to follow Christ in the everyday, ordinary moments of life. You see, the movie Sully is about a man who did something great, but it's also about a man who felt accused and who was challenged and who was scrutinized. And I think for most of us today, we have lived there too. I think for some of us, we've felt where we've done too much wrong. I think some of us have felt maybe that sometimes people only see the worst in us, and we can relate to an extent. We know we've made mistakes and done things we shouldn't, but every part of us is pleading, please don't judge me by the worst of me that you see. You see, and the gospel, friends, is the good news that even when you feel that way, even when you feel accused, even when you feel judged, even when you feel caught, When you know that human error has played a big part of your story, the gospel is the truth that God loves you and that God accepts you and that God doesn't throw stones at you. But he wants to walk with you. He wants to strengthen you. He wants to empower you. And he wants you to know that he has a future plan in store for you. And that the best is ahead. And it may not always be easy. It may not always be free of challenges, but it will be with him and he with you. And the reason why this movie, Sully, was so celebrated is because it's good news. Good news. And good news is beautiful. There's enough bad news out there today. Go home and watch the news immediately following this gathering. You'll see what I'm talking about. But the good news of the gospel is this, is that in the midst of everything, human error and sin and all that stuff, that God has come down to us, found us, and he offers us the opportunity of a lifetime to walk with him and live with him forever. Amen? And that's good news for every single one of us this morning. And so here's a couple questions just that you could take with you. My first thought is this. Do you find yourself living in the present? Or are you always finding yourself maybe worried about what happened back then or maybe always thinking ahead at one day maybe? Do you find yourself living in the present? Because how we live in the present will greatly have an effect on what we see in the future. My second question is this, is is, do we model a life of humility? Have we recognized how much we need God and how much we need others? And my third thought is this, maybe for some of us today, this morning, what you need in your life is just a fresh dose of good news. And maybe you've heard the good news of Jesus for the first time this morning. I don't know our story. 
Is there anyone in here this morning who would say that, you know, the gospel sounds like good news and I need to accept Christ? Anyone? I want us to pray together as we end. And so if I could have every head bowed and our eyes closed, would you repeat this prayer with me? Some of us might be praying this for the first time. Some of us might be praying this for the 20th time, but pray with me. Jesus, I'm praying this prayer because I know that I've done wrong by living without you. I'm sorry, and I trust that you'll forgive me. I accept your love and grace for me and ask that you would be my Lord. Help me believe in you, to love you, and help me to show the world what you are like and how great your love is. In Jesus' name, amen. And Lord, I just pray for each person here today. Lord, that wherever we are in life, Lord, that you would help us to see the value in living in the present. Help us to walk humbly. Help us to walk with you. Lord, as you prepare moments for us where we have times and decisions to act, I pray that you would empower each one of us and help us to gain from our daily experience of you in those moments. In Christ's name, amen. Can I have everyone stand? If you prayed that prayer for the first time this morning, I just invite you at the end of the gathering just to come up to the front and I'll just be hanging out here. I'd love to chat with you. Love to chat with you a little bit more about that. But I have a blessing that I want to end with today. And so in ancient times, the one who blessed those who wanted a blessing extended hands. And so if you'd like a blessing, please extend your hands today. And here it is. Go forth into the world in peace. Be of good courage. Hold fast to that which is good. Render to no one evil for evil. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the afflicted. Honor everyone. Love and serve the Lord, rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit and the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit be among you and remain with you always. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. And uh, we'll see you next week.